Section 21 of The Beginning of the Middle Ages by Richard William Church. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 9 Consolidation and Unity of the English People. Part 2. The great and remarkable feature of English history, when it is contemporaneous with that of the followers of Charles the Great abroad, is the succession and influence of a singularly able line of kings. The kings of the house of Serdic in Wessex were unlike, in their continuity of policy and energy, to any other series of kings of the time. They were different in their qualities and even in their fortunes, but they were all men with a distinct purpose, which in different ways they carried out. The purpose to give unity, strength, and elevation to their English people. For the space of nearly a hundred and eighty years, from 800 to 975, the kings of Wessex steadily pursued in the face of the most adverse circumstances, and even with great sacrifices, their practical object of binding together and consolidating the various divisions of the Saxons and Angles, which left to themselves would have grown steadily into the evil habits of internal and local animosities so common at the time. They did this, doubtless, by the strong hand, yet by no exercise of despotic tyranny, and apparently with the full concurrence of their chiefs and leaders. Egbert laid the foundation by establishing a supremacy over the northern and midland kingdoms. For thirty-five years after Egbert, his successors were occupied in the desperate task of protecting the land against the Danish ravages. Their success was checkered, but they never lost heart, and their resistance to the strangers bound the English to one another and to the royal house. The danger and the resistance came to their height under Alfred, 871-901, and Alfred was the flower and type of the Wessex kings. Sober, dauntless, resolute, patient, he met his circumstances, dark or bright as they came, with the same steady temper, the same high public spirit. Receiving his kingdom amid calamity and disaster, overpowered and overmatched, he retired, biding his time, but not losing hope, till his opportunity came and he was able to win and enforce a peace. By the Peace of Wedmore, which allowed the Christian Danes under Guthrum to settle and live by their own law in the east of England, the Dane Lagu, a very faint kind of English Normandy, he abated, though he could not entirely check, the pressure of the northern rovers for nearly a hundred years, and thus gained a breathing time for the works of peace. Alfred, serious in his religion as in all he did, and in this, as in other things, full of sympathy with his people, applied himself to raise and improve them. He set on foot reformation in the church. He rekindled the lost learning of Bede and Alcuin. He awakened what was equally precious, greater in this than the great Charles, the faith, the confidence of Englishmen in the power and worth of the English tongue. He wrote, he translated, he edited in English. He represents in the highest degree all the humanizing tendencies of the time, the efforts to bring out what was excellent and noble in the national spirit, and to cast off what was barbarous. 
In this he was like Charles the Great. But in Alfred there was more soberness of aim and purity of life, with more care for justice and mercy. Alfred is the father of the English navy. He saw, like Edgar after him, that England, to be safe, must be powerful on the sea. He was a legislator, reverencing and holding to the past, but owning the changes of the present, and not venturing too much to bind the future. He was sparing of his laws, because, as he writes in the preface of his dooms, I durst not risk of mine own to set down much in writing, seeing that to me it was unknown what part of them would be liked by those who were after us. Alfred set the standard of an English ruler, one who thought not of himself but of his charge and duty, who did nothing for show and sought not his own glory, but gave himself and his credit to, when necessary, to the interest of his kingdom and the work of his place. He was followed in the first years of the 10th century from 901 to 925 by his son Edward the Elder, who followed the same policy of uniting the nation together. He waged war for it with energy and success, quelling revolts and bridling the troublesome Danish settlers with fortresses which were to grow into towns. He incorporated Mercia, governed by his famous sister, Ethelfleda, the Lady of the Mercians. He received homage from the Welsh princes of Scotland, Strathclyde, and Wales, who saw in the English king their bulwark against the Danes. Athelstan, 925-940, to his son, the hero of the earliest surviving English war ballad, the Battle of Brunanburh, followed in his father's steps, crushing rebellions, teaching the English by fighting to feel themselves one, beginning to be famous even across the sea. Sisters of Athelstan were the wives of western kings and princes, of Charles the Simple and his antagonist, Duke Hugh of Paris, of Boso, king of Provence, of Otto the Great, king of Germany. The widow and son of Charles the Simple took refuge with Athelstan, and Athelstan's influence counted for much in the restoration of his nephew, Louis d'Outremer, who brought some of the vigor of the line of Wessex, but not its ability or its fortune, into the failing race of Charles the Great. Through trouble and hard fighting, not without reverses, his two brothers, Edmund and Edred, and his nephew, Edwy, carried on the work of amalgamation, defense, and government from 940 to 959. And when another nephew, Edgar, from 959 to 975, received the kingdom of the English, he received it, compact within itself, a kingdom in which he was really master on each side of Watling Street, over the Danish settlers, as well as over his Englishmen, while his supremacy was acknowledged all over the island, in Northumbria, and by the Celtic Scots and Welsh. He was king of the whole of Britain and of all its kings. The scribes of his chancery delight to style him by the western term Imperator, and the eastern Basilius. He seemed the island counterpart of the great Otto, crowned emperor at Rome in 962. The story told by Florence of Worcester of King Edward's barge rode on the Dee by eight vassal British kings expresses what was thought and remembered about him. Throughout many nations, 
chants the old English chronicler, and over the sea, the Gannet's Bath, kings honoured him far and wide. No fleet, he declares, was so bold nor host so strong that could tear away the prey from the English kin, while that noble king held his throne. In Edgar the Peaceful, the great political and social work of the kings of Wessex reached its height. His reign of peace for seventeen years, troubled only by insignificant local outbreaks, but by no serious wars, is one of the most remarkable phenomena of the time. Under it, the English felt themselves one people with a destined place among the nations. West Saxons and Mercians, Northumbrians, East Anglians, and men of Kent and Sussex were content to be united members of the great English kin and realm. They had taken the definite mould and stamp which they were henceforth to keep. Tremendous disasters awaited them. They were to measure their strength in vain once and again against foreign invaders. Their enemies were growing in power and union as well as themselves. Contemporary with the kings of Wessex from Alfred to Edgar, the successors of Rollo the Norman, 876 to 927, William Longsword, 927 to 943, and Richard the Fearless, 943 to 996, were creating Normandy. Contemporary, too, with them, the Scandinavian tribes, from whom both Danes and Normans came, were growing up like their kinsfolk into nations and kingdoms under chiefs of strange names. Gorm the Old, 883-935, Harold Bluetooth, 935-985, Sven or Svend of the Forked Beard, 985-1014, Olaf the Christian King of Norway, 994 to circa 1000. The English were to be ruled weakly and faithlessly, to be defended by fitful and useless valor, to be betrayed by their chiefs and played upon by strangers. But England was already England. The nation had already become constituted and had taken its ply before the storm fell upon it, and its fortunes came into the hands of the weak and the traitors. Edgar the Peaceful was hardly four years in his grave before its woes began under Ethelred the Unready, 979-1016. to The Danes came back this time, not to ravage or to colonize, but to conquer. Ethelred the Unready, the king without counsel, brave and stirring but wanting his father's good sense and statesmanship, was a king after the kind of the later Carolingians. When he failed to check the Danes by fighting, he adopted the fatal foreign policy of buying them off, and thought to frighten them by the shameful and fatal massacre of St. Bryce's Day, November 13, 1002. But the Danes themselves were no longer what they had been. From a swarm of separate adventurers, like the Ragnars and Rolos and Hastings of a hundred years before, they too had grown by their successes into organization at home. It was now the king of Denmark, Sven, the son of Harold, who brought the strength of the Northmen to avenge St. Bryce's Day, and further to add England as a kingdom to his kingdoms in the north. He drove out Ethelred from England, and after the death of Ethelred's nobler son Edmund Ironside, in 1016, Canute the Dane became king of the English, 
and England became a dependency of Denmark. What the Danes began, their Latinized kinsmen, the Normans, continued. For two hundred years from Canute's succession, with one short interval, the reign of Edward the Confessor and of Harold, foreigners were kings of England, Danes, Normans, Angevins. Yet two things are observable during this time of foreign ascendancy. One is that the kingdom of England, conquered though it be, is the proudest honor and most important portion of the possessions of its foreign king. The other is that through Danish, Norman, and French rule, the English speech, the English usages, the English slow, resolute sturdiness of temper are absolutely proof against the strong influences of a foreign court and a foreign territorial nobility, and even of foreign tribunals and of foreign clergy. The people had reached a toughness and consistency of character and a strength of common ideas and habits, which enabled it to bear the rough assault. It did not become Danish. It did not become Norman or French. It was strong enough to absorb the genuine Norsemen fresh from the sea and forest. It was strong enough to absorb the altered and more civilized Northmen of William the Conqueror. For this education of the English nation, incomplete undoubtedly, but so distinctly marked, so deeply rooted, and so enduring, we are indebted mainly to the kings of Wessex, from Egbert to Edgar the Peaceful. The strong personal influence of the West Saxon kings had much to do with uniting the English people. Personal influence, powerful at all times, was indispensable for a great national progress then. But there was another influence continually at work, not so manifest in historical incidents, but diffused through the society of the time, without which the policy of the kings would have had much to contend against. The great agency of fusion and unity was the church. Its archbishops and bishops were in immediate relation with the king and his chiefs, their fellow counselors and authoritative advisers. Its priests and monks were in close contact with the various classes and local subdivisions of the people, sharing their fortunes and their ideas, the one source of instruction to them and of culture. The church had its fluctuations of vigor and decline, of efforts after learning and goodness, and of corrupt stagnation, and like everything else, it savored of its age, of its rudeness, its incompleteness, its ignorance. But the Anglo-Saxon church was eminently a popular church. Its leaders were deeply concerned in the public interests of the state. More dispassionate and better informed history has recognized in Dunstan, once the byword for priestly arrogance and cruelty, a genuine patriot and reformer to whom amends are due. The chosen friend and counselor of the Wessex kings, especially Edgar. Its saints appealed to popular sympathies, as sufferers at the hands of the heathen foes of England. And it not only spoke, but it wrote in the mother tongue. The Anglo-Saxon New Testament, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the Anglo-Saxon Homilies of Elfric, are all so many evidences of the way in which, in a manner scarcely known abroad, the English churchmen, acting it may be under the impulse given by Alfred, did honor to their own language, and tried to popularize knowledge, 
both religious and secular. End of section 21.